Uh, today's scripture comes from Psalm 106, verses 9 to 23. This is the word of the Lord. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Abiram. A fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up uh, the wicked. They made a calf in Oreb and worshipped in a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I want to introduce our our speaker for today, and um, just in case you're visiting us for the first time, uh, Pastor John Lee, uh, he is the one who actually uh, planted and started this church, and uh, he he's a he's hard to describe, right? He's a, he's everything. He's like a pastor. He's he works at Geneva as an upper school head. You know what I can also say? He's now an author because he's gonna uh, publish a book next month. So uh, uh, definitely, when the the book comes out, I'll tell you about it, and then we can all read it together. Um, but he's uh, you know I think he's been a, a man who has been very generous, uh, a man who has been very uh, inspirational. Uh, a man who has probably raised and mentored and discipled a lot of people, myself included. So uh, the fruit of his works is is all over uh, the world, <laughs> and in particular, I think in the uh, New York, New Jersey area. So let's welcome him up as he comes and delivers uh, the word of God. I'm not as tall as Pastor Sam is, so... Uh, thank you for that warm welcome, and I forgot where I put my sermon. It's in my head anyway, so it doesn't matter, but it would be good if I could find it. And I took it out specifically, oh, this shirt doesn't have a pocket. Could it be this? It is, all right. Perfect. Awesome. Um... Is Allison here? I guess she stepped out. Oh, I thought what you shared was amazing. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a preacher in Allison. Uh, so great to hear um, her interpretation of what's going on. And God is indeed moving in Turkey as he is moving in other places as well. Let me open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll launch off in today's message. Uh, gracious and loving Father, we come to you and we ask for illumination by the power of your Holy Spirit. Because apart from your spirit, we cannot see, but through your spirit, we see clearly. Uh, We're inspired. We want to give our lives over to you. It's a sense of honor and privilege to to know you, uh, to live for you, to lay down our lives. So we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be active in our hearts and in our minds, uh, that you would touch the inner being of who we are. Uh, so that we would be molded and shaped not by the world around us, but by your word and the spirit and how the spirit works in that word uh, to bring out Christ-likeness in us. We pray, Lord God, that today 
the, the next uh, uh, 30 minutes or so, uh, that you would speak powerfully through your word. And may that word truly touch who we are and give life to those who need life, encouragement to those who need encouragement, healing, inspiration, motivation, a new perspective. I pray that you would do all these things. And we're not timid in asking, Lord God, because you promise so much more. You've given us your spirit. Uh, We are blessed uh, to the max. We're raised with Christ. Everything is under our feet. So, Lord, we come not as poor people, but we come as ones who have been blessed because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, So, Lord, bless our time uh, in the way that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do today is actually preach in the form of the text rather than the text itself. But if I preach merely on the form of the text without the text itself, then some people will say, hey, this is an odd pastor. Because he didn't really preach the text, he just preached the form. Uh, But if you're sophisticated, you will know that the form conveys meaning just as much as the text does. But lest I be accused of not dealing with the text, let me give you a couple of uh, pointers as we look at this text. And there's so much here that we can talk about. So in in essence, I'm going to give like six messages Uh, And if the Holy Spirit touches you to follow up on any of these things, I pray that you will follow up because there's so much good theology and encouragement for the people of God as we look at Psalm 106. So what are some of the things that we can look at in Psalm 106? Uh, Pastor Sam read from verse 8 and following. Verse 8 is wonderful. It's wonderful because it shows us why God does what he does. And he says, yet he saved them for his namesake to make his power Uh, His mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, dried it up, led them through the depths as through a desert. So why did God do that? Well, the psalmist, he interprets that. He didn't do it because the Israelites were great. He did it for his name's sake. And this is something I think we need to keep in mind. If a congregation is arrogant and proud, uh, they don't like when I say this. But if a congregation is humble and realizes who God is, it gives them great comfort. Because this text basically says God works for his own namesake, not your namesake, not your reputation's sake, not for the sake of who you are, but for the sake of who he is. In other words, we are chosen people, but we are never choice people. And if we think about that from a humble perspective... It really is comforting. It's not about us. It's about who God is, what he has done. He does everything for his namesake. And of course, Ezekiel and the other prophets will hammer this point home. Uh, Paul, in a pain of praise to God, will say the same thing. Everything is done for the praise of the glorious grace of God. It is our comfort, my brothers and sisters. It is our security, our confidence God will bless us, he will work, he will move, he will orchestrate, he will be with us for his namesake. We can stumble, we can be feeble, Uh, we can say, like this great um, hymn by Robert Robertson, our hearts are prone to wander and leave the God that we love, but God will act for his namesake. Verse 12, they believed his promises and they sang his praise within the context of talking about the parting of the Red Sea and wonder, the wonder of God as the people witness the power of God, the splitting of the Red Sea, theologize it a little bit, it's parting of that cosmic chaos, it's the destruction 
of Rahab, the sea creature or Leviathan, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, Tiamat, the destruction of evil, the triumph of righteousness, that wonder leads to praise. It's just like our song. Uh, when I consider the stars and all that God has made, the buildings, uh, the concrete jungle in which we live, and if our eyes see correctly and our hearts perceive uh, God, that wonder will always lead to worship. Uh, so I pray that we would be a people captivated by wonder. One of the great things about teaching, and Pastor Sam mentions, uh, mentioned that I teach, and I do love teaching children, because every so often they're just filled with wonder. Uh, sometimes adults are not filled with wonder because they're so busy. But I pray that you would be filled with wonder as you walk around New York City. Um, every time we come into New York City and I see the skyline, I'm filled with wonder. How could a city like this exist? And ultimately it exists because of God. And that wonder appropriated properly will always lead to worship. And this is why whenever God does something amazing in redemptive history, what happens? The people wonder. They're standing in awe. They're thunderstruck by who God is and what he can do. Uh, I think physicians who are Christians, they look at the human body and they're filled with wonder. Uh, historians look at history. How did this ever happen? They're filled with wonder. Or as a worship leader is singing and leading worship and they realize spiritually who God is, it leads to wonder. And that wonder always leads to praise. May we be then people filled with great wonder. Verse 14, in the desert they gave into their cravings. I love that word. They gave into their cravings. Uh, the reason why they went wayward is because of their hearts. Uh, nothing else. It's not about circumstances. It's about their hearts. Their hearts crave for the wrong things. May our hearts crave for the right things. And therefore, this is good reform theology, true transformation of a person has to stem from the heart. Our hearts have to be changed. If we do not have a changed heart, we do not change. The modification of our behaviors means very little. True change takes place within our hearts. And only God can do that, so may God give you new cravings. So if the Israelites here crave for the things of the world, uh, then we can actually crave for the things of God, and that's an awesome place to be in. And I know in New York City, there's so many delights and so many pleasures. It's really hard to crave for that which is righteous and that which is truly good, truly beautiful, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit, he can give us new cravings. We can hunger for God. We can thirst for God. And I think it really does start with prayer. Uh, may one of your prayers this season as you're going through the book of Revelation or in your men's group or your women's group, say, Lord, give us a craving for you. Not just a love, a craving, an intensity for you. Uh, may we never be satisfied unless we crave and hunger for you. Uh, because our hearts, believe it or not, are created to crave. And the Israelites here just crave for the wrong things in the wilderness. But we, in 2017 who have the Holy Spirit, can crave for the things of God. Verse 21, they forgot God um, who saved them, who's done great things for them in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. There's a propensity in all of us to forget. We are forgetful people. Uh, therefore, we need to remember. Pretty obvious. If you look at this passage, I think the word forget is used about three times. Uh, so it shows us that uh, it's not on one occasion we forget. We forget on many occasions. We probably forget the things of God 
10 times a day, 20 times a day. Uh, if you multiply that by all the days that we have lived, there's a lot of forgetting. And what we need then is to remember. We need to remember who God is. And one of the ways we remember is we form good habits. Uh, use the means of grace that God has given to us. So when you come to church on Sunday, you are saying to your body, you're saying to your mind, because you're physically walking here or driving here or taking the, the MTA, you're saying, I'm going to put myself in a position so that I can remember. When you get up for morning prayer, and hopefully I'll see some of you guys at morning prayer and 40th and Lex, you're always welcome. What you're saying to your body is I'm going to put myself to remember. You can make that resolve. Why? Because we know the propensity in our hearts to forget. When we come to a time of worship or a time of gathering, what we're saying, we're making that resolve. We are here to remember because it's so easy to forget the things of God. We see that in the Israelites time and time again. May we remember one of my favorite passages comes from Second Peter, where Peter says, I'm telling you this so that you won't forget, because when I die, who's going to remind you? Because you're going to forget. And I want to tell you, because I never want you to forget. And he goes on and on and on and on, because Peter, as a master pastor, post-resurrection, post-pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Peter knows that people are prone to forget. May we be a people that remember. There is honor in remembering. There is power in remembering. There is glory to God when we remember and we call others to remember. You know, I just thought of a story. I have no idea if it's true. It's probably fake. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I, I used this story in a sermon when I was a youth group pastor and have no idea why I'm remembering it now. But maybe God wants me to share it with you, so I will share it with you. It's a story of a martyrdom and uh, a person is about to be martyred, and they're asking this person to deny Christ so that they'll make a public spectacle out of this person. And that person is filled with fear and anxiety because he will be hung. And there was a little boy in the audience, and he made a sign of the cross with his fingers and gave this person the grace to remember, and he died well. I don't know if that story is true. Like I said, it's probably fake. <laughs> but at the same time, it does underline we need to remember. We need to be people who actively remember, and there is nobility in remembering. The final little sermon comes from verse 23. He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. One person makes a difference. Um, so I want everyone here to know that you, as an individual, can make a difference. Moses stood in the breach. He saved his people. I mean, if you look at the Bible, and it, there is an argument to be made that uh, a collection of people uh, don't make a huge difference, but an individual can make a big difference. David made a difference. One man. Moses made a difference. One man. Nehemiah made a difference. One man. Each apostle, wherever they went, one person made a difference. Uh, the myth is we need to be huge to make a difference. All of you here are capable 
of standing in the breach. And as you stand in the breach, God will honor that because you were in Christ and you can make a difference wherever you are. Now imagine if 10 people in this room actually believed that. And they took a step of faith and they said, Lord, tell me what breach to stand in. I will stand in it no matter what. I will force myself to remember. I will realize that you do these things for your namesake. And I'm going to look around, be filled with wonder, and be a worshiper. You will change New York City. You will change wherever you are. Because you have all the wherewithal you need to be a blessing wherever you are. And we see that here. Moses stood in the preaching. God says, I would have destroyed the people had not Moses stood in that breach. And the psalmist is praising God for what he has done. So I don't know how God's going to touch your hearts, uh, but those are a couple of sermons, about five sermons. You can unpack them yourselves as you look at this passage. That's sort of the context. There's, there's more there. There's, there's too much there, actually because it's a retelling of uh, Israel's history. But what I really want to speak on is the power of stories. And you might be thinking, well, how how is John going to get there? Well, I'm going to get there because if you think about it, we are looking at the Psalms, right? The Psalms, they're the ancient uh, hymn book of the church. Uh, We should sing the Psalms. Uh, Psalms are a perennial blessing for the people of God because we see the psalmist's heart bear as the psalmist is praying these things, worshiping God and penning these things. They're intimate moments. You can't get more intimate than the psalms. We see humanity, but we also see divinity. We see brokenness, but we see forgiveness. We see grace. And right in the middle of the psalm, Psalm 106, um, we come to this lengthy psalm. And what is it? It's actually a story. We would not expect that in the psalms. You would expect uh, hymns, uh, penitential psalms, once in a while an imprecatory psalm, uh, psalms of praise, uh, psalms to install a king. Uh, But you wouldn't expect this lengthy story, but here it is. Out of nowhere, we have a retelling of Israel's history. This might seem odd, but I would argue it's not odd at all. The form of a story if you think about it, is really all over Scripture, uh, all over the place. And every critical juncture, what God is doing is he's reminding his people that they are a part of a story. So he's not just telling a story. He's saying, hey, you're a part of this story. So, for example, when God uh, finally comes to Moses, as the people are crying out in Egypt, uh, God hears the cries of his people, and they are his people because there is a prior relationship. There is a story already in place. And when he approaches Moses, surely he says, I am who I am. But at the same time, he says, I am the God of your forefathers. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's doing, he is saying, I'm going to do something, but I'm going to do something because I have a prior relationship with all of you. And therefore, what he is actually doing, he's taking Moses and he's putting him into a story because Moses may have forgotten that story. 
And hence, there is a connection to this story, and now Moses is a part of it. From another perspective, what God is simply doing, he is telling a story. In subsequent generations after the Exodus, such as this passage, what is God doing? His I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. What's he doing? He's actually telling a story. If you look at every covenant that is made and every covenant renewal, how does it start? It starts with the preamble. And what is that preamble? It's a retelling of Israel's story. So every time God is going to make these great and grand promises to the people of God, God says, I want you to remember the first thing. There is a prior relationship and there is a story. If you think about First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, they roughly talk about the same time period. It's like the Synoptic Gospels. Why are they there? Well, I would argue that First and Second Kings is telling a story, and that story is why there is an exile for the people of God. There is an exile for the people of God because of their unfaithfulness, and God tells that story. But when you come to First and Second Chronicles, there's a, a change in that story because the people are wondering, yeah, we are unfaithful. We have been unfaithful. But is God finished with this now? And God says, no, he's not finished with you. And hence he gives First and Second Chronicles because First and Second Chronicles tells a story from the perspective of the fact that God is not finished with Israel. He will give grace. He will rebuild because God has not forgotten his covenant God has not forgotten his promises, and therefore it starts with genealogy. And that genealogy is there because it's linking the time of the chronicler to a prior story. There is a story that's in play. Even when people are rebuilding the temple, and you can imagine when you're rebuilding the temple, and even when you're rebuilding the walls in the face of persecution. Now this is really ironic to me. You have all these people wanting to destroy your temple, wanting to destroy your walls. You have all these people who are aiming to kill you. It's ancient terrorism. Uh, They want to take Nehemiah out. And the longest chapter in the book of Nehemiah, you know what it is? It's a story. God says, well, I know things are not going well, outwardly and inwardly. So, let me tell you a story. Wow, that's very interesting, isn't it? And we finally come to the pages of the New Testament, and um, how does it begin? It begins with this magisterial gospel called Matthew, and it starts with genealogy. And this genealogy is broken into three sets of 14. You divide all of that by two, then Jesus is the eschatological year of Jubilee. And if he is indeed the jubilee where there is freedom for captives and the forgiveness of sin and a year of cancellation of all debts, then Jesus is telling a story. Matthew is telling a story. This is the culmination of that story. It's the climax of that story. He is the true son of David. How does Luke begin? Luke begins with genealogy too. So if Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, he's telling the Jews a continuation of the story. If Luke is the most Gentile of the Gospels, he's telling the Gentiles a story. 
But this time, it doesn't start with Abraham. This time, it goes all the way back to Adam. He gives a story of the world. That's how Luke begins. Another story. Now, to be honest with you, I haven't counted all the words, nor do I plan to do so in the book of Acts. But if I were to take a guess... The longest chapters in the book of Acts are actually stories. Probably Paul before Festus, and certainly Stephen's massive speech in Acts chapter 7. So this is really mind-blowing. The first martyrdom of the church takes place in the context of a story. What's Stephen doing? He's just telling a story. And when he finally gets to the point that says that God does not live in temples made with human hands, the people cannot take this story. They don't like this story. Hence, underlying the power of that story. And they stone him to death. He is killed. But I want you to know that he dies as he is telling a story. I mean, stories are so powerful in the Bible, sometimes the stories that the Bible gives us don't even have words, but we're supposed to see them as stories. So John chapter 7, you see the Feast of Tabernacles. That's a story of Israel's exile. That's a story about God's eschatological ingathering. That's a story where everyone is a high priest. And even if we look at Jesus' movements and what he does, the very fact that he is baptized in the Jordan by John goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan, and then climbs up a mountain and gives this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. That's just a recapitulation of Israel's story, where Israel crosses the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness, and they go to Mount Sinai to receive the law. So even if it seems like no story is in view, there is a story, and sometimes that story is more powerful. It's all there. So I think there is a strong argument to be made that stories are everywhere, spoken, unspoken, symbolic, literal. Stories are everywhere in the Bible. And we have to ask why. Because I think God wants us to lose our lives in his story. Because when we lose our lives in his story, we find our lives. Not only that, stories are the most powerful things on earth because they really change you. They give you a mission. They give you drive. They make you do what you do. Everyone tells stories. We're created in the image of God, so by creation itself we are storytellers we are listeners of stories our life is a story whether you know it or not everyone has a view of the good life right the greeks knew that and therefore they spun mythology they spun stories so when athenians wanted uh, a loyal citizenry you know what they did they said that their people were literally sprung from the earth and they even created a word they were autochthonous 
And the Thebans did the same thing. They wanted a powerful Thebes. And you know what they said? said, our citizens sprung from the earth because this guy Cadmus slew a dragon and they buried the dragon's tooth into the ground and sprouted up powerful soldiers of Thebes. Sons of Thebes came from the earth. That story was powerful. Created Thebes. The Athenians, their story created Athens. America has stories. Hollywood has stories. New York City has stories. They're everywhere. Now, most of you know that I was a high school wrestler, but I'll tell you, I, you know, as, as an adult, I think about my past once in a while, and I know the exact moment in my life where there was a new story. I was a freshman, a year younger than Caleb, my son, who's in 10th grade now, and my record was a losing record my freshman year as a wrestler. But one of the mandates of our school was, even if you lost in the tournament, you have to go to the tournament to support the other guys who advanced. A couple of our guys advanced, so it was the finals of this tournament. And we were a Division I school. And lest you misunderstand, Division I is the smallest, paltry, insignificant school in New Jersey. Division IV is they're, they're the powerhouse. Just the opposite of college, right? Uh, we were a D1 school, average class size, 80 to 90 kids. Half of them were gals, so there were about 40 guys, and we had this ragtag wrestling team, and they were all ex-Dungeons Dragons players, so we were not very good. We went to the tournament, and that night, I've never seen a crowd that big in my life at a sporting event. Uh, apart from professional sports, I saw the Harlem Globetrotters and MSU when I was younger. <laughs> there were about maybe 2,000 people max capacity at this gym. And in the finals, what they did was they began to uh, introduce all the finalists. So, for example, if Pastor Sam was a wrestler, it's like, Sam Kim, hailing from this town, uh, wrestling 115 pounds with the record of so-and-so, just like, you know, a professional fight. And they would walk on the mat all alone, opposing him, Dennis, right? <laughs> Weighing in at 114.5 pounds from California, right? And they would shake hands, and they would give each other dirty, you know, eye of the tiger looks, and they would walk back. After that was done, everyone, please rise for the national anthem. And after the singing of the national anthems, then people would, 2,000 people bang their feet on the bleachers. The guys at the top, right, they would bang on the radiator. So you heard the, um, the wood, the bleachers buzzing. Then you heard the rattling of the radiators, and all the lights of the gym slowly went off, and people were screaming. And as soon as the final light went off, four spotlights in the corner of the room shone right in the middle of a red wrestling mat. The whole place became red. And the tournament of, of, of the finalists would begin. When I was 13 years old and I saw that, it started a new story. And I said, I will get there. And I will win this tournament no matter what. It did change my life. There was a new craving. There was a new desire. I did something impossible I was the first person in my school to never miss a practice. 
in the history of my school. I was the first one, last one out. That's crazy. I dedicated myself to um, working out six times a week, probably missed three or four days in three years. I ran cross country and I hate running for three years. And at one point, I actually became a runner and I liked running seven or eight miles because I got my second wind and I would go another three or four miles and I felt I can fly. You see, stories uh, are everything. All of you, whether you know it or not, have bought into a story. And that's why you are what you are today. Why you do what you do is because of a story. Um, in many ways, the, the church is losing uh, in this world. Uh, for example, The Modern Family is a very funny TV sitcom, I hear. That story has gripped America's imagination. And hence, America is just a modern family. Fifteen years ago, 20 years ago, Friends, that was New York City. That was their story. Uh, probably simultaneous, that was Sex in the City. That was the story of New York. People bought into it. It was attractive. It changed people's lives. They moved here. They got jobs here. They settled down. Why? Because of a story. Now, here's the irony. God has given us the most glorious story, but like the psalmist says here, we tend to forget and not only that, this is the only story that's real. Uh, it's rooted in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, so it has efficacy. This is a story that leads to glory and consummation. And what we need to do is to rediscover this story, and we need to share this story, and we need to let this story shape the contours of our hearts and our minds. And as I think about my life, why do I do what I do? Well, at my best... I do what I do because I believe in the story of redemption and I believe that I am part of that story. That is my story. And I believe no matter what difficulty comes my way, I can fight through it because God is with me and I know that for a fact. And even if I fail, it doesn't matter. God will do it for his own namesake and it gives me confidence and it gives me strength. In this story, I believe that God opens doors and he closes them. So I look for doors that are open. In this story, I believe that we can be a prophet. And sometimes I yell at people. And sometimes I feel as though God wants me to mediate because that's part of that story too. And then I play the role of a mediator. So what fuels the passion of my heart is this story. And when I listen to... Um, good Bible stories or good music that's rooted in this story, then all of a sudden I want to lay my life down. Why? Because in this story, laying your life down is a glorious thing. So what shapes me? What shapes you? What shapes people? It's a story. No wonder in every critical juncture of the Bible, God figuratively sits down and says, my children, come by, I'm going to tell you a story. Then he becomes a raconteur right there the master storyteller, the story of redemption. The form of this psalm is a story. But we must not stop there because the form of this psalm is not just a story. It is a story 
in song. Oh my gosh, that's really odd. So you're going to tell a story in song? Yes, that's the brilliance of Psalm 106. It's also a song. So if you think about it, really, really powerful, it is a song. It's an epic of Israel's history in song. There are two verses in the Bible I think we need to really focus on. And um, for you who love, you know, looking at little details, you will realize that they're actually talking about the same exact thing. And they're talking about the same exact thing because the outcome is identical. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God richly dwell in you. If the word of God richly dwells in your heart, you will sing psalms, hymns, and songs to the Lord, making melody in your hearts with thanksgiving. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. If so, you will sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart with thanksgiving. The outcome is the same, and surely they are talking about two realities, identical realities from a different perspective, and they're penned by both the Apostle Paul. So we're on safe grounds. So letting the word of God richly dwell in you and having uh, the Spirit fill us or being filled with the Holy Spirit are basically talking about the same thing and it leads to a life of worship. Now, why do I bring all this stuff up here? I bring all this stuff up here because when we steep ourselves in the word of God, letting the word of God richly dwell in us. And that story becomes who we are. Then that story becomes so deep that it passes our minds, it passes our emotions, and it touches what the apostles, Paul says, our inner being. Why? Because we're filled now with the Holy Spirit. This is who we existentially are and what we existentially feel then we can't help but be worshipers of God, no matter where we are. So it penetrates deeply. And if it penetrates deeply, then we become different people. It works for the secular world, too, right? The stories that the world tells uh, makes New Yorkers the way they are because their inner being has been touched by the songs and the sirens of the world. So what we need is the songs of God to penetrate deeply in our hearts so that we would be different people. That's how I think we can change. We need to see the story of redemption. Now, if you guys know uh, Pastor Brian, and some of you do, uh, you can tell his, his life is a story. He's a man that believes in the story. It shaped the contours of his life like you would not believe. He interprets everything through the story of redemption. God has given us stories. I also wanted to give this message to Good News Church because whatever you go through, the Bible not just has the story of redemption, but it's got side stories as well to interpret what we're doing, where we are, how we ought to live in each season. And I pray that God will give you discernment and wisdom to take those stories and make them your own. And I pray that it would be 
so natural at one point that it would come out in all of your prayers, that you would see all the typologies in the Bible and it becomes who you are and that becomes how you look at the world and your current situation. So if you're going through a difficult time, I pray that God will open the eyes of your heart to see that it might be God's purifying fire. And if God is not giving you what he uh, what you want, that you would be able to latch on to that story that says God is destroying the felt needs of your life so that you can hold on to what you really need. And when you're going through a difficult time, you can hold on to that story. God is making me a person of hope that I can soldier on no matter what happens in my life. These are stories, friends, that are all connected to this, this huge trunk, this tree. And it's the trunk of redemption that goes to glory. But it's got a lot of branches too. It's all connected. And may these stories be who we are. So what do we need to do as men and women here in New York City? Well, I wrote a a letter, which I did not send, and uh, it's rooted in a song, but more antecedently, it's rooted in one of Homer's poems, the Odyssey, that epic, that great epic. And there's a scene where the sirens sing, and they call out to sailors. Um, and the song is irresistible. It's, it's powerful. And Homer has a way with poetry. And... Um, If you listen to the siren's call, you go too close, you'll be dashed by the rocks and you will die. Odysseus knows this. So what does he do? He ties himself to the mast of the ship. So he can't be the helmsman that brings his ship to destruction. On the one hand, you want to be like that. You want to tie yourself to the ancient mast of God's word and refuse to hear the siren's call of New York City. But you need to pray. God, penetrate the inward parts of my heart, and may I crave your story. And may you form that story so deeply within me that redemption flows no matter what. That only comes through prayer and meditation. You gotta want it. If you don't want it, then... Ask God for a heart that wants it. And keep at it until you see your life in that story. And that's one of the hallmarks of maturity. You can tell a person who is mature or not in faith. Tell me your story. Everything you need to know is right there. If their vision of the good life is, you know, to make a lot of money, help the church here and there, they don't know the story of redemption. But if a person has lost this life and rediscovered it in the story of redemption, then you know that that person has walked along that road fairly far. Lots of challenges, right? If you're a millennial, the challenge will be to not commit and find your own way through your own life, through your own desires. Uh, That's not a, a formula for godliness, if you are a person that's uh, in love with money, and that's your vision of the good life, or a relationship, uh, that's a siren's call, friends, and it's not going to lead to huge blessings. So pray. That's my first application. Pray. 
that God would penetrate your hearts with the glorious story of the gospel. And may that form and shape your minds and your hearts. My second application is this, and it goes out to worship leaders, it goes out to creative people, and I know GNC has some creative folks, uh, people who like to write poetry and write short stories. You might kind of hide it to yourself or like to paint, like to write music. Uh, I want to, in a sense, release you to do it more because what we need in this world are just better everything. We need, we need better music, right? We need better creative things that really reflect um, God's story of redemption and his love for the world. So if you find yourself in that category, go crazy. (laughs) Jump into the deep end and do it. In fact, I'm going to start a creative club. So if you want to join my creative club, (laughs) email me. Our our first meeting is going to be in a month or so. And we got about 15 people, uh, mostly Texans. (laughs) And we're going to have a creative club. And we're going to write stories and people are going to share their songs because New York City is dying because it's got a really worldly story and it's going nowhere good. But we have that story, which leads to life. Um, The last application is this, and it pertains to something near and dear to your hearts, and that is, I know you guys are praying for um, a children's ministry uh, leader. Continue to pray for that because one of the great privileges that we have is we can plant the seed of God's story in young people um, at a young age. And if we are successful in doing so, what's going to happen is our children will grow up to be oaks of righteousness. And if you can touch the imagination of a child at a young age with the gospel story, that is the greatest thing that you can ever, ever do. Uh, so I pray that God will bless your search a millionfold and get the most mature person who is being called to shepherd children's heart so that they would lose their life in a story at a young age and refine their lives at like the age of seven, which would be pretty amazing, and teach us what the story of redemption might look like. And maybe God's going to call you to do it. You know, honestly, one of the problems I see um, in most churches is I think the youth are doing really poorly because the parents have no clue what to do. They get a nice guy who knows very little to lead the youth. And when that happens, the kids turn out all messed up. And you can't blame them in a sense. That's what they've been given. Uh, but good news has, is, has always been special. It's always the best folks that take care of the youth, like the elders. <laughs> and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, I pray that we will all find our unity in this beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. And may that be your fuel, may that be your fire. May that be your motivation. May that be your passion. May that be your creativity. May that be why you're here. May that be what you want to do. 
with your finances, with your life, with your energy, with your time. And there is no better story. And in the end, and this is how I'll close, it will never lead to disillusionment. You will never regret walking along this path because it is the path of life and glory and God will do it to go back to ah, verse 8 of the psalm for his name's sake. Why don't we bow our heads in prayer and just spend 30 seconds, maybe a minute, responding to God of how he may have spoken to our hearts. And one of the great things that we can do because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Paul says, we can seal God's messages in our hearts by the power of God's Holy Spirit so that we would not forget. So that this word would be planted in some of the most fertile soil and we could uh, make some seedlings even now as we pray and as we respond. And may those seedlings, like I said before, become oaks of righteousness cosmic trees that bless the world. So let's spend some time praying about what we have heard and what we have read um, in Psalm 106.